Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody, again. My name's Eric. I'm pastor here at Trinity. Just wanted to mention a few things. Uh, I think one of these was in the bulletin, and one was sent out this week in our weekly e-news. I was talking last week about some staff transitions. We have some staff transitions happening here at Trinity. One of those is uh, our interim ministry coordinator and communications staff person, Janet, will be stepping down, and Sarah Kim will be taking her place. We're really excited about that. Also, last week at our congregational meeting, I mentioned we're looking for a new uh, kids director. And if you already heard this through the e-news, you already know, but we're excited to announce that Christy Sosa, who's been an intern with us for about a year and a half, she'll be stepping in to that role. So I just wanted everybody to know about that if you didn't happen to read the e-news. And then next week, we'll have a special service. We will be in the course of our regular Sunday morning worship service, we'll be installing our new elders. So we are adding to our leadership team, Steve Williams and Eddie Hong. They'll be installed. It'll be a really special time next Sunday. So I wanted to make sure you knew about that. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can pull them out or you can uh, turn there in your worship folder. We're looking at Matthew chapter 3. And last week, we began a new sermon series for the season of Lent. And I'm calling it Groundwork for the Soul. Anytime you do a new project or embark on a new journey, if it's a big task that you're facing ahead of you, doing something new, it's important that you start by laying the groundwork first. You lay a foundation, you look at the infrastructure and make sure that it's in place. And it's the same thing for us spiritually. It's the same thing for our souls. This is the way that God works in our lives as well. If we want to change, if we want to grow, if we want to be more engaged in His mission and in service, first we need to look at the groundwork in our hearts and in our souls. The season of Lent in the church calendar, it began on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, uh, with, with Ash Wednesday. It provides, I think, a yearly opportunity for us to do this kind of groundwork in our lives, to step back and to ask ourselves some of the basic questions or to step back and ask ourselves, how are we doing in our roots, in our groundwork, in our hearts, and spiritually take a look at those things? So we're looking at Matthew chapters 3 and 4, and those two chapters, they're all about the groundwork for Jesus' public ministry. Before he launches out into ministry, which is the rest and the most of, of, of the story of the Gospel of Matthew, we have chapters 3 and 4, which tell us about this groundwork. And so they are good for us to look at. They apply to us as we do our own groundwork, both personally and both individually and corporately as a church, as we're seeking fresh direction, new places of growth and calling in our lives. 
So just setting the context again for these two chapters, last week we began and we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist. We talked about how the ministry of John is all about a ministry of preparation. He's preparing the people of his time, and he's preparing the reader of the Gospel of Matthew to meet Jesus and to encounter Jesus. And we talked about step one in doing this soul groundwork is taking a posture of preparation and repentance. Now we come to the next part of the story. After John comes on the scene and says, somebody's coming, get ready, the next thing that happens is Jesus is actually baptized by John. So if we're following along in the story of Matthew, we should be pretty surprised by this. We should be a little bit shocked. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2, we looked at these during the Advent season. They build up a lot of anticipation, a lot of momentum. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire story of the Old Testament. We had that long genealogy that's all building and pointing and moving towards Jesus. We have Jesus who is called Emmanuel. This is God with us, God in the flesh. He is the Savior to come. And then John is saying, you guys need to get ready. Somebody is coming far mightier than me. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He's coming with fire. He's coming with judgment. And so all this momentum is building as we read the Gospel of Matthew. And then Jesus comes on the scene in verse 13, and he says, the first thing that we need to do here, John, is I need to be baptized by you. That's the first thing he does in his ministry. And John says, no, this is not the way it's supposed to go. And Jesus says, no, this is the way it's supposed to go. And John's like, no, this is not the way. And they're having this discussion and disagreement there. And finally, in verse 15, Jesus says, we need to let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying, this is where I have to start. This is the right place for me to begin my ministry. Jesus' baptism. Something that I have to admit, I hadn't thought a lot about until this week. But after thinking about it, after studying, I realized that in the story of Jesus, as it's written, in the story of Jesus, as we continue to engage with who he is and what he came to do. This is the place we're supposed to begin in answering the most basic questions about Jesus. And I think it's the place for us where we need to begin in addressing these core questions deep in the groundwork of our own souls. Questions that we all face, questions that we all ask. And step two, then, in soul groundwork, if step one is to prepare Step two is to go back to the basics. Our kids have been in a number of different types of schools, and as they've changed schools in their grade schooling, there's been different approaches to math that they've learned. So in their current school, they're going back. It's kind of old school because they're doing math drills. Like every day they have to do either addition or subtraction or multiplication. They just have to do it as fast as they possibly can, just get through it and get it as accurate as possible. Now, part of the theory of this is that before you move on to more complex math, which, by the way, I'm horrible at, (laughs) but complex math, and I can't help them with that. I can help them with these addition uh, tables. Before you move on to that, you need to master the basics. And if you have 
uh, an equation that you're trying to solve or long division or long multiplication. Usually when we look back and we get the wrong answer, we realize, oh, I just added wrong. Oh, I just multiplied wrong. And so if we're experiencing a problem in the output in our answer, we need to go back to the basics. It works that way in arithmetic in math. I think it works that way for us spiritually as well. If we're looking at our lives and something's off, if we're looking at our lives and we want to experience more growth, we need to start by going back to the basics. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time, or maybe you're here and you're brand new to Christianity, and you're investigating Jesus, you're curious, maybe you're skeptical, this is a place where we can all start. Jesus' baptism helps us answer three basic questions that I think are deep in our souls. And they're in your outline. You can follow along. Where am I? Who am I? And why am I here? The questions of location, identity, and calling. Let's start with that first question. In verse 19, as, as John is describing this scene, or as Matthew is describing the scene, where Jesus comes to meet John, actually in verse 13, I should say, we notice that John is very specific about the location. Where Jesus starts his ministry is extremely significant. So there in verse 13, Matthew is emphasizing the scene and the setting of Jesus' grand entrance, his public appearance into the world to start his ministry. It says he came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. We see from this interaction that Jesus has with John that this wasn't something spontaneous. This was something very intentional. This was something very planned by Jesus. So this, what, two months ago in January, there was a lot of talk about the inauguration of our current president. And there was all this talk about who's performing, who's coming, what high rollers are going to be there, what celebrities are going to be there, and all that. I know some of you are smiling. You were tracking with that. So whatever you thought about that inauguration, the purpose of an inauguration is what? It's to make things official. And it's also a chance for the person who's being inaugurated to to communicate and to send a message and say, these are my priorities. This is my plan. And at Jesus' inauguration into ministry here, he is making a very big statement about his priorities and his plan. So John's baptism was a call, a call for people to repent and to confess. The Jordan, as we talked about last week, the Jordan River was a significant place. It was the place that, that Israel went through when they came into the promised land for the first time. It was a place of new beginnings. It was a place to start over. And this is why John was opposed to, to baptizing Jesus. He said, neither of those things apply to you, Jesus. You are not sinful. You don't need to come and confess and repent. I need your baptism. And he said, you don't need to start over. God is starting over with you. Why are you starting over with us? You're supposed to come with fire and judgment against sinners. This is what John was thinking. So Jesus, by the very act of being baptized, says, this is the statement that I'm making. I'm being baptized not because I need to repent or confess of my sin, but in order to show the world that I've come, not with the fire of judgment, 
but to meet them, the world, to meet us right where we are. Broken, sinful, and in need of a new start. Jesus is saying, I'm starting by fully identifying, by immersing myself with broken humanity and all its sinfulness and all its mess and all its junk. That's where I want to start. And his baptism was the beginning of him taking that on and bearing that for us. I want to share a quote that I think captures this so well. It's from Frederick Bruner. You can put that up there on the on the screen. He says, the first thing Jesus does for the human race is to go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between two thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. So it's like Jesus is saying to us, before I show you how to get out of this mess, first, I want you to know that I am with you in it. That I am with you in it. Jesus' very first action is to be baptized. His very first words that he speaks in his public ministry are, this is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, first, I didn't come to bring judgment against sinners. Instead, I came to fulfill righteousness for sinful and broken people. He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. This is significant for us as we seek to answer the question, where am I, as we're doing our own groundwork for our souls. I think the question we always need to start with is that question, where am I? We see where Jesus began, where he was. And Jesus' baptism frees us to ask that question, to answer that question honestly, without fear, freely, to admit where we are. Before the days of GPS and cell phones and all all these ways that we find our way around and use maps and, and the applications for that, when you were driving somewhere unfamiliar and you got lost and you had no idea where you were going, you had to face the terrible choice between stopping and asking for directions and saying, I'm lost, or just pretending you knew where you were going because you had too much pride. And when you stop and when you ask and you admit, I'm lost, the first thing you need to determine is, where am I? Where in the world am I anyway? I know where I want to go, but where am I? Before you know where you're going, you have to know where you are. That's still true when you go to a mall or a shopping center And you're going, okay, first I need to find out where I'm going. And then, wait, where am I anyway? You see that red dot. I love that red dot because it's like, you are here. That's where we need to start. the The most important moments for us spiritually are those moments where God shows us you are here. That's where we begin, in places of new growth. That's where we begin, in places of new service and mission. Those are places of beginning. Those are places of breakthrough when God shows us, this is where you are. Jesus begins 
his ministry, not with people who have it all together, not with people who are pretending that they have it all together. He begins his ministry with people who went out into the wilderness and said, we don't have it all together. Things are not good. I am not the way I should be. I need to come. I need to turn to God. I need to repent and confess. These were people who were ready to ask honestly before God, where am I? Show me. One of the main reasons people never do this, one of the reasons we're afraid of that question is because we're afraid that if we admit where we're at, that we'll be met with the fire of judgment. And Jesus' baptism says that's not where Jesus begins with us. We don't have to hide how we're really doing. Jesus says, the place where I start is with the person who's willing to ask, honestly, where am I? He says, I'm not going to leave you there, but I'm going to begin with you there. So this Lent, if you're observing Lent in any way, I would encourage you to ask that question. Spend some time, maybe writing it down. Where am I? Where am I spiritually? Am I drawing closer to God? Am I drifting? Am I doubting? Where am I? Spend some time in that question, honestly. Another application of this is that if we have people in our lives and we're concerned about their spiritual location, we're concerned about their spiritual condition, if we're concerned that people are living far from Jesus, wandering from Jesus, where we begin is important. Not with the fire of judgment, but with immersion into their lives so that they know that we are with them and not against them. That's the first question. Question of location and where am I? Jesus is coming for, for baptism shows us where he is. And when he shows us that, that he's with us in our broken and sinful humanity, it helps us see where we are. But what happens at Jesus' baptism also shows us who he is. It shows us his identity. And in revealing his identity, it helps us answer the question of identity in our own lives. Jesus' baptism, I said, it's kind of like an inauguration, but it's also like an introduction as he steps into the public where God is formally introducing him to Israel and to us. One of my favorite parts of any sporting event is when the home team is introduced. Because if you're indoor, if you're in a basketball stadium or something, they turn down the lights and they pump everybody up and they say, this is your team. And everybody's like, yes, fired up. So this is like this time for Jesus, his introduction. It's like the lights go down, and everybody's quiet and wondering, who is this? And three big things happen at this moment. As Jesus is baptized, as he rises up out of the waters, three things happen. Each is rich with symbolism. First, the heavens open up, it says. And that's symbolic of God's revelation. God is saying, you want to see who I am? Look at this man. Look at Jesus. The second thing that happens is this, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. This takes us back to at least a couple places in the Old Testament. All the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1, we read of 
the Spirit hovering like a bird over the chaotic waters before anything was formed and created. He was there to bring life and new creation. Or maybe this is pointing to Genesis 8, after the flood. After the flood cleansed the world, the dove was sent out as a symbol of a new beginning. Jesus comes out of the water, out of these waters of judgment and repentance. He's coming out of the old to bring new life and new creation to a broken world. But maybe the most notable part of this introduction is what is said. What does the voice say? Whenever it's your role to introduce to a crowd, like a speaker or a guest, you want to focus on their accomplishments. You want to focus on their achievements. You want them to earn the respect and the honor of the people that they'll be coming before. But how is Jesus introduced? Because this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here is the most important thing I want you to know about Jesus. This is my Son whom I love, whom I delight in. There are several Old Testament connections to this statement as well. We're going to get to those in a minute. But first, I just want to focus on the fact that God in introducing Jesus to the world, focuses on affirming him in his identity. Even though Jesus already knew this, he knew who he was, in his humanity, he needed to hear it again as a confirmation as he started his ministry. So even for Jesus, identity was primary. Even for Jesus, before he did anything, he had to know, who am I first? He had to get that right before anything else started. I think it's the same for us as well, this issue of identity. Who am I? It's one of these basic core questions in our soul. Where do we look for our sense of self? Where do we get our sense of worth? How we answer those questions affects everything else in our lives. It sounds like a basic question, but it's not an easy question to answer. Back in my college days, I took a class called Eastern Religions, and it was a very unique class in that the professor wasn't teaching it really from an academic standpoint, but she was a very strong and and devoted follower of Eastern philosophy and religions. And so one of the things she had us do at the very beginning of class, she said, I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to introduce yourself. Tell them who you are, but you can't tell them your name. You can't tell them anything you do, nothing you do is to be included, and you can't include any relationship you have to anybody else. So go. How would you answer that question? We were all stumped. We were just like, I am a boy. (laughs) I am, and we were stumped. And the, the question, it was a very good exercise to get us thinking about which voices define our lives which should and which shouldn't. When it comes to identity, I think there are two main approaches that we have. There is the I am who others say I am approach, and then there's the I am who I say I am approach. The first one, the voice of others define us. The second one, we say, no, it's not the voice of others, it's my voice that defines me. The I am who others say I am is kind of the traditional approach 
It's when our family or our social structure or our culture defines our role, our status, our worth, our sense of self. And we fulfill that identity and we bring honor to our family. We bring honor to our place in society. And that's where we find our worth. Some examples of this that would apply to us. For some, it's the voice of our parents or the voice of one particular parent. I've talked to many people whose parent or parents never said these words that were spoken to Jesus. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I delight in you. And if that's true of us, we become often driven. Either driven to earn the affirmation and approval of our parents or driven to prove them wrong. That's one example. Another example could be the voice of another person, maybe our spouse. And what they think about us matters the most. We are defined by that. We live for their approval. And there can be some good in the traditional approach, but the drawback is we feel great pressure to live up to this expectation. And if this is all we are, if this is all our identity is, then we lose ourselves. We really don't know who we are. So in our modern Western culture, we take a different approach. We say, no, that is not the way it works. I am who I say I am. I will create my identity. I will not be given my identity. It's captured in a quote there in your reflection quotes in the bulletin. George Bernard Shaw said, life isn't about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. You can even find online how to build your personal identity for dummies. This is such a prevalent approach for us. With social media, we can create uh, what MIT psychologist Sherry Turkle, she calls it our filtered self. We can create a self that we want others to see. We can present that self on social media. Examples of this, there are many. We could look to find our identity in our success, in our career. We find our identity in what we do and how well we do that. It could be our, our main vocation or, or our avocation, our hobbies, our interests. That defines who we are. It could be in our looks or in our fitness or in some type of image that we want to portray to others. It could be in being the perfect or the right type of parent. It could be in being the perfect or the right type of Christian. It could be in being the perfect or right type of fill in the blank. These are all ways that we look to create an identity for ourselves. But the problem is this, is that when we replace the voice of others with our own voice, it turns out that our voice is just as demanding, if not more demanding, just as harsh a critic as anybody else's voice. So there's even more pressure. There's even more insecurity that we put on ourselves to live up to that identity. We can tell when we're looking for our, where we're looking for our identity by a few tests. One would be the test of criticism. If we're criticized in this area of our life and it crushes us, that's probably where we're looking for our identity. Or if we fail in that area and we cannot get over that, probably where we're looking for our identity. It's a thing in our lives that if we lose it, we feel like we'll lose ourselves. So both these approaches 
They leave us insecure. And so back to Jesus' baptism. What we see in Jesus' baptism is Christianity's approach to identity. It's utterly unique. It says it's not the voice of others who define you. It is not the voice of yourself who defines you. It is the voice of God alone that can give you a secure and a freeing identity. At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, what you're about to see in Jesus and lived out before your very eyes, this is the kind of life. This is what life looks like when you are secure in the identity that I give you, when you are defined by me and my love and my delight. And he's saying this is the identity we can have by faith in Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, our baptisms, whenever we were baptized, are a reminder of this identity. Because Jesus lived the life we should have lived, perfectly righteous, because he died the death that we should have died, he took our judgment, we can know no matter what that the thing that is most true about you is that you are loved and you are delighted in by the Father. And nothing can take that away. There's a quote here by Henry Nouwen. And he talks about this. He says, yes, there is that voice. The voice that speaks from above and from within. And that whispers softly and declares loudly, you are my beloved. On you my favor rests. It certainly is not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, you are no good. You are ugly. You are worthless. You are despicable. You are nobody unless you can demonstrate the opposite. To stay rooted in our identity is so important, but so hard. A few applications for us. One, parent, parenting. The task of parenting is difficult. There are many aspects to the task of parenting. But maybe the most important task in all that we do is to make sure and do all that we can is to have the Father's voice resounding in the hearts and souls of our kids. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. So that our voice in their lives is a reinforcing voice of the Father's voice. Probably more than ever, our kids are in a, in a situation and in a culture where they're facing comparison, criticism, the danger of being shamed, with, with, with social media. And so now more than ever, we need to zero in as parents on reinforcing that voice. This could apply to our marriages as well. Even Jesus in his humanity needed to hear out loud the reaffirming voice of the Father. And so one of the central tasks of marriage, which is a kind of gospel reenactment, is to reinforce the voice of the Father in the, in the souls of our spouses by communicating our love and delight in them no matter what. Those are the first two questions. Where am I? Who am I? Now we move to the final question. Why am I here? Jesus' baptism shows us where he is, his location, that he fully identified with us in our sin and brokenness. It shows us his identity, that he is the son, God's unique and beloved son. And thirdly, his baptism shows us his calling, 
It's his inauguration, it's his introduction, but it's also his commissioning into ministry. The Father's words spoken over Jesus are actually the combination of two Old Testament passages. One is Psalm 2, and the other is Isaiah 42. I want to look to those references. Psalm 2, verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Son is not just a familial title, it's also a royal title. It's the title of the king. And so the words of the Father spoken here to Jesus are his commissioning as the king. He says, your job, Jesus, is to be the king who will bring all the nations back into submission under my reign. That's your job. The second part of this passage says, he is a son in whom the father is well pleased. That comes from Isaiah chapter 42. Matthew quotes from this once again in chapter 12 of the gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read from there. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name all the nations shall hope. Here is your mission, here is your commission, Jesus You are called to bring justice to the nation. Set all things right. Bring justice, not by force, not by might, but somehow with a combination of power and tenderness and gentleness together. So you bring it all together, and Jesus' calling is, His mission is to bring the world back into submission under God's rule, to set everything right that has gone wrong, to bring justice without breaking fragile and broken people. That's his mission. How can he do that? We see that at the cross, these two things come together. Even as Jesus was there hanging on the cross, the crowds were questioning him and his identity because they didn't understand his calling. Matthew twenty-seven forty says, if you are the son of God, if you are really the son of God, then come down from the cross. Verse 43 says, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. At the cross, Jesus took on the identity of a sinner separated from God. So we could have his identity as a beloved son. At the cross, he lost the voice of the Father so that we could receive it and never lose it. Application for us. We'll close with this. Why am I here? How does this help us answer the question of calling in our lives? There's a psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson who's written a book called The Soul of Shame. It's a great book. He says, shame is the weapon of evil not only to corrupt our relationships between God and others, But shame also disintegrates any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity that we are given by God to promote goodness and beauty 
and life in the world. So guilt and shame. Guilt addresses our actions and what we do. Shame speaks to who we are. Shame is the felt sense that I am not enough. I am defective. Something's wrong with me. I don't matter. What we see here from Jesus' baptism is that answering the question of identity with the gospel enables us to answer the question of calling, free from shame and fear. We don't pursue our calling in order to prove ourselves, in order to drive back the feeling of shame. We pursue our calling out of a secure sense of our identity in the gospel. There's a movie, a surfing movie called Chasing Mavericks. I don't know if anybody has seen that movie, but it is based on a true story of a guy named Jay Mariotti and another guy named Frosty Hessen. So Jay was a young, a young boy uh, whose father had abandoned him, but he found out he was a surfer. He found this spot called Mavericks, which is up uh, in, where is it? It's up by Santa Cruz, Morro Bay. Somewhere up there by Santa Cruz, there's a spot where this huge wave called Mavericks is. And there's only a select few people at the time that are surfing this wave. And he finds this group of guys who are just crazy enough and brave enough to do it. And so he latches on to one of them named Frosty. He says, I have to surf that wave. Teach me. So he's a 15-year-old kid, and he comes under his tutelage. At first, Frosty doesn't want to do it, but he says, okay, fine, I'll teach you. Because his mom says, he's going to do it anyway, whether you help him or not. So he's like, okay, I need to keep you alive. So I'm going to teach you how to do this. And he has him write 55 essays on surfing before he even is willing to take him out in the water and do all kinds of crazy exercises. But finally, the day comes. He says, okay, we're going to surf Mavericks. And they get there, and what they notice is that the wave is more intense than they've ever seen it. And so there's a scene there where Jay, who's 15 years old, he has to have a scene where he kisses his girlfriend and they do all that. But the final scene before he's like, I'm going to go out, is with him and his mentor, Frosty. And Frosty says to him, as they're looking out at the waves, whether you decide to paddle out and take the drop, I love you no matter what. So Jay, he goes out and he does it secure in the voice of this father figure, the father he never had. That's the freedom we can have when our identity is rooted in the voice of the father. We have nothing to prove. The father says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. We can be free from the fear of risk, the fear of failure and the toxic work of shame. This morning, we celebrate communion together, and communion, baptism is one sacrament given to us as a picture of who we are in, in Christ and what He does in our lives. Communion is another sacrament. It gives us a regular opportunity to come back to Jesus, just like our baptism, and remember the answer to these three questions. Where am I? Communion says, Come. Wherever you are with all your struggles, with all your burdens, with all your sins, you are meant to come and to receive fresh grace from the Lord in those things. Who am I? Because Jesus lived for me and died for me, I can hear the voice of the Father saying, you belong here at this table. 
This is my family meal for my sons and daughters. You need to come here. You're mine. Hear my voice of love in your heart again. And it reminds us why we're here. It reminds us of our calling. Jesus is coming again to make all things new. He sends us out, commissions us from this table to serve and love in word and deed. Let's pray together now before we come to the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you meet us in our deep questions. We thank you we can come to you no matter where we're at, honesty, honestly and in truth. We thank you that your loving voice speaks the words we so desperately long to hear, that we are loved by you, that we are your children. We thank you that you would give us the privilege of serving in your mission. I pray now that this time at, at your table would be a powerful time, that you would meet us here, that you would speak the words deep into our souls that we need to hear, that we'd come with our burdens, that we'd come honestly, and you would renew us. In Jesus' name, amen.